0: Hello, and welcome to the Jubilee Church podcast. Jubilee Church exists to help all people know God, find family, discover purpose, and make a difference. If you would like to learn more or connect with us, please visit our website at jubileestl.org. Hey, before we get started, um, I just want to um, share a few reasons why I think that the church in particular should, should recognize and, and celebrate uh, the work of, of Dr. Martin Luther King. Uh, f- first of all, it's, it's slightly, the first reason is slightly personal. Here's what I mean. He is, he is Dr. Martin Luther King, but he's also Reverend uh, Martin Luther King. Um, there are three holidays that, that, that celebrate the work of pastors. Um, this one, and then uh, St. Valentine and St. Patrick, but those have been hijacked by, Drinking beer and romantic love, which you know sometimes they go together, but the uh, the, the uh, but this one has has stayed pure, and I, and I think it's really important to just remember that that this is this is the work of, of a pastor. It's remained untainted. Uh, it, it you know the marketing machines haven't gotten all over it all over it, and and it's a day of service and and reaching out. I mean, there's not even like Martin Luther King Day sales. Um, so it's just, it's, I mean, we've been looking for a refrigerator. So we've been, I was wondering if there was, and and I just told Rachel, you're gonna have to wait till President's Day. And so uh, in the meantime, just put your food outside. You know, it's cold. You know, you want to live more simply. This is the way to live. Anyway, she didn't think that was funny. But uh, Samantha thought it was funny, but uh, Rachel didn't think it was funny. Uh, but yeah, so this is, let's not forget that this is, this is the we're celebrating the work of a pastor. And I, I, I remember that. And secondly, the, the, his vision for One New Man in Christ is, is so uh, centered in the gospel. Like, this is the gospel message. In fact, outside of Christmas and Easter, no uh, no holiday is at the center of the heart of God than this one. And, you know, I know some people are like, well, you know, sometimes, you know, different groups have hijacked, you know, that day. And uh, you mean, like, it hasn't happened with Christmas? Like, there wasn't a Christmas tree in the manger, right? So it wasn't like he gets a manger and you get a Lexus and, and that's Christmas. Like, it's... it's it's a day, uh, the heart of the day is his work is, is one new man in Christ, and his work is, is centered around the gospel, and, and it's important, I think, the church to remember those two things. I think thirdly is that it recognizes that there's still work to be done, and I love that, that it's, it's the way that it often gets celebrated by people is not a day off, but a day off from work to do other work, And one of the key themes in the Bible, and this is important for us to understand, is that you and I are a work in progress. In fact, the word until is a key theme in the New Testament. That word is mentioned more than a hundred times that, you know, we will preach the gospel until every nation, every tribe, every tongue. You and I, we, we need to be equipped and we need to speak the truth and love to each other until we reach the unity of the faith. It means that we're not there yet that you and I believe uh, in a gospel that is not based upon what we do, but what Christ has done on our behalf. And so that means that you and I are free from this idea that we have to pretend that we're better than we're not. And so we embrace the untilness, and we're honest, and we're vulnerable, and we say, yeah, there's still a work to be done. And I think when it comes to uh, seeing this vision that the Bible puts out before us, uh, it's important to recognize that there's still a work to be done. There will, there will be one day where we'll see him, and we will become like him. There is a big until, but until that day, we will be busy uh, preaching the gospel, loving each other, speaking the truth in love, and pursuing this vision of one new man. And I would just encourage us, for those reasons, to pursue that vision. And I would just love to pray for us uh, that every household, that our relationships, that our church, churches, that our cities would reflect this heart of God. Jesus, we thank you that you love the world and that you sent your son to die. Jesus, your work on the cross, your sacrifice on the cross tore down this wall of hostility between um, us and you. We were enemies of you while we were still sinners, while we were rebels, you died for us and you span this eternal gap between us and you. And God, I pray that this vertical love that we've received would work its way out horizontally just as you commanded it to, uh, that we would love and reach out and service, that we would give ourselves to the gospel work of every tribe and every tongue under one name, that is Jesus, Amen. Amen. Well, we are in the gospel of Matthew. We're doing a series there. If you want to turn to Matthew chapter four, turn to Matthew chapter four. We'll be in Matthew for most of the year. Uh, we'll break it up in different little series throughout the, uh, while we're there. In fact, in here in a couple of weeks, we're going to do a series called um, Reconstructing Faith, uh, a, a compassionate look at, at uh, the deconstruction that has happened Uh, that you see and maybe you know someone who's fallen away from the faith and we wanna take a compassionate look at that. That'll happen here in a few weeks. But today I wanna start with a question. You don't have to answer this out loud, but here's a question. What comes to your mind when I say the word Christian? If you ask 10 different people that question, you would probably get at least eight or nine different answers. In fact, the the latest study by uh, Barna says that 65% of America says, yeah, I'm a Christian. Seems high to me. Seems seems like I don't know that I believe that. But here's why. The reason is, is because being a Christian is a very vague term. In fact, if you grew up in church or have any kind of church background at all, it's actually really easy to become a Christian. Um, you know, you say a prayer, you know, let God in your heart and bada bing, bada boom, <laughs> you're, you know, you're a Christian, okay. But what's interesting, what's interesting, I love you, Sam, thank you so much. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Um, and thank you. Um, what's interesting is the gospels say nothing of becoming a Christian. In fact, the New Testament only uses the word Christian three times. And oddly enough, it's never used by Christians. Um, Luke records the first time it's mentioned in the cosmopolitan city of Antioch Acts eleven twenty six in Antioch, and in in Antioch the disciples that's an interesting word we'll talk about that were first called Christians. And let me just be clear that word was not a compliment. It was not. It was a derogatory term, and it's important to to realize. Um, I got too many things in my hands. Um, it's important to realize that um, the world called the disciples Christians. The disciples did not call the disciples Christians. In fact, they use other—they use all kinds of derogatory words. They—they they, uh, the the world said that this sect of Nazarenes. They were often referred to as Christians or this sect of Nazarenes. This this. This carpenter from Nazareth, they, they follow them. These, these people live differently. They think differently. They behave differently. They love differently. They do money different. They do marriage different. They do all these things different. They're just a weird group of people. Um, disciples called themselves disciples. Paul called them the way, which I know sounds like a cult. I know it sounds like Kool-Aid and weapons are involved, but it was, it was, it was something different, something more narrow. They call themselves disciples. What is a disciple? That's a little more narrow. Uh, and, and I would guess that most of us, when we walked in this room today, maybe, maybe not, most of us would be comfortable with the, the badge of Christian. But I wonder if you're comfortable with the badge of disciple. I know, you, I know you want to be a Christian, but do you want to be called and live like a disciple. That's a different thing. That's, that's a scary question. Here's why it's scary, because I can define and I can redefine the term Christian until I'm fine. And you can define and redefine Christian until you're fine. Well, I think this is what Jesus is like, and I think this is what Jesus is like. And I think, you know, I'm a conservative Christian, I'm a liberal Christian, I'm a progressive Christian, I'm a white Christian, I'm a black Christian, I'm I'm all even all different kinds of Christians. What kind of Christian are you? It's only one kind of disciple. It's pretty narrow. Now, the good news is the word disciple is defined. It's mentioned more than 281 times, exactly 281 times, I should say, in the New Testament. And so we're gonna look at that in Matthew 4. Matthew 4, let's start at verse 7. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom uh, kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus is a king. He has a kingdom. There's a new sheriff in town. There's a new way of doing things. There's a new order. And you are living this way. I want you to repent. And that word repent means to change, like do a 180. I want you to stop living this way. And I want you to turn around. And I want you to start living this way. In light of the fact that I am king, in light of the fact that you are embracing a new kingdom, I want you to live differently. And then he calls some guys. He says, walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net. I'm gonna need some glasses. Casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Here's an interesting word, verse 20. Immediately. They left their nets and followed him. And going, that wasn't a pause on purpose, anyway. Okay, and going on, and going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee. Okay, so the um, Zebedee is James' dad. Just log that. And John is brother. So James and John are brother. That means Zebedee is also John's dad. Log that. They're mending their nets, and he called them. That is, Jesus called them. Here's that word again. Immediately, they left the boat and their father in the boat, and they followed Jesus. What is a disciple? Well, disciples are chosen by Jesus. Um, All Hebrew boys went to Torah school at age five, and they would learn Torah the first five books of the Bible. And they would learn this. At age 10, every Jewish boy would know the Torah. And at age 10, there was a weeding out process. And And the best of the students were allowed to continue. The rest were sent home to work with their fathers in the family business. Uh, Remember that James and John were with their father fishing. Fishing was the family business of Zebedee. If James and John are fishing with their father, that means they didn't make the cut at age 10. Just log that. Well, if you did make the cut, you went on to learn what we now call the Old Testament, which is the history books and the prophets, uh, Joshua through Malachi. Malachi was not an Italian, so don't go there. But at age 17, if you wanted to go, I know that was lame, even Samantha didn't laugh at that one. I mean, I don't know if anyone out there laughed, you know, in the internet world. Um, at age 17, if you want to make a career out of religious studies, your next role was to find a rabbi you admired and you would apply to be their disciple. When you found one, you went and sat at their feet to learn everything you could learn. Now, I want to make a note of here. Uh, You you might have noticed that I I, I only said that boys would learn the Torah. And it's very true that both in Hebrew culture and really all the cultures of the world, um, without exception, only educated boys. If you know your Bible, though, you'll know that um, there's this famous story about Mary and Martha. And Mary was at the feet of Jesus, and that wasn't just because she was tired or it was, the be- it was because that was the posture of a disciple, which Jesus was quite happy with. So don't, don't think that Jesus excludes women as disciples, not even in that culture. It's actually one of the reasons why they killed him. Anyway, that's another sermon. So you would, sit at the, you would sit at your rabbi's feet and, you, and the rabbi would begin to examine you and see if you were worthy. But I want you to notice, as we've already pointed out, that these boys did not come find Jesus. Jesus came and found them. If you, in that day, disciples would go seek out a rabbi. Jesus, though, did not, did not um, they did not seek out Jesus. Jesus sought out them. And here's what, And the same is true for you and I. God is not your idea, you are God's idea. And that's important to note. Uh, because what it originates with man must be sustained by man. But the good news is what originates with God is sustained by God. Because if all of this is his idea and not yours, if it was your idea, it could fail. If it was my idea, it could fail. I would quit. It would peter out. Like it wouldn't, I wouldn't, would have no confidence. And I gotta, I gotta, you know, am I good enough? Am I doing the right thing? This was not. A re- this is totally different than the ways world of doing things. It's totally different than any other religion. You do not seek God. The Bible is so clear. No one seeks God. No, not one. No one looks across the room and think, oh, God's my type. There, No one is God's type. You do not seek him. He sought you. And this is God's idea, which means it will last. That's why Paul said to Philippians, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. This, that's good news that he has called you. Well, who does he choose? Well, we've already talked. He did that. Um, well, in this culture, rabbis were able to be pretty selective because in those days, becoming a religious uh, ruler was the best of all jobs. No Hebrew boy. They didn't grow up thinking like, oh, I want to be a rock star. I want to be a sports guy. They all dreamed of being rabbis. They had like rabbis posters in their room. Like, like that was the ideal for them. And so consequently, these rabbis were able to be very selective. They could choose the smartest, the most talented boys to be their disciples. But we already established that these guys were fishing which means they weren't the best of the best. In fact, they they only not made that cut, they didn't even make the first cut. It wasn't just that they were better, they were worse. They were on the low end a commentator on this passage said, God skipped all the wise of the day. The great scholars were in Egypt. The great philosophers were in Athens. The powerful were in Rome. He passed over Herodias, the historian, Socrates, the great thinker, and Julius Caesar, the great leader. He chose men so ordinary, it was comical. No rabbis, no teachers, no religious experts, not even a synagogue ruler. Half were fishermen. One was essentially an IRS agent and the other one was a former, and one was a former terrorist. He chose the B team. He did not choose the wise of the world. He did not choose the powerful of the world. He did not choose the talented of the world. He chose you. Because his work then and now would not come through our ability. It would come from his ability through us. Our talent, our ability would only get in the way. Uh, the, The scriptures are so clear in fact, James, the half brother, Jesus said, "God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble." You want to turn off God's grace? Anybody want God's grace here? You want to? You want a sure way to not get it? Just be prideful, and you want, you'll turn. You will literally turn the spigot off. He's not looking for the the best of the best. He's looking for you and me. I love Matthew eleven. Truly, I say to you, among those born of a woman, there is not risen. There there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist, yet the one who is in the least of the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Why is he greater than he? Because God's life and spirit is gonna live in and through them. God makes us greater. So they're chosen by Jesus and they follow Jesus. And this is where it gets a little rough. This is where it gets a little narrow. This is where it gets a little bit Um, beyond just being generally Christian, to be specifically a a follower of Jesus. And and what's important to note is that to be a follower of Jesus is to understand that our primary call is to be with Jesus, in a relationship with Jesus. In a parallel passage in Mark 3, um, it says this. It says, He, that is Jesus, appointed the twelve so that they might be with him. Our primary call is a relational call, to be with him, I mean, he didn't tell them where they're going and he say, hey, this is my assignment. I'm gonna do this, this, and this. And that, you know, uh, he's like, this is, I, 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 want, I want to call you to be with me and to go where I'm going. And that is the deal. We become like him. Come follow me. Come be with me. Come get to know me. Come, because my goal isn't just to get you to do stuff. In fact, uh, getting you doing stuff is just to mold you and shape you into my image for that you would become like me. That's the goal. I, I know sometimes, you know, The Chosen can get mixed reviews and uh, the, the show, the TV show. And I, uh, you know, there's some things about it that I think they fudge. But the the, the one thing that I think they really get right that I appreciate if you've seen it is that is kind of this everydayness about what it was like to follow Jesus. This idea that they'd all... Wake up, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. Hey, where are we going today, Jesus? Where are you taking us today, Jesus? Where are we going today, Jesus? What do you have for us today? I know you're going to do something great today. I can't wait to see what you do today. Where are we going? I'll tell you. You know, just come with me. And and they went with him because we know. I don't know who's going to be. Maybe you're going to pull Peter aside. Maybe you're going to pull me aside. Maybe you're going to pull all this aside. But you're going to tell us something about ourselves that we didn't know, and it's going to it's going to unlock change, and we're going to become more like you, Luke, because what you said. And that, man, what are you doing with us today, Jesus? And I think it was exactly like that. Is it like that way for you? What are we doing today, Jesus? What do you got for me today, G? Man, I wonder what you have in your word. I wanna know you, I wanna be like you, I wanna be shaped into your image. What agenda do you have for me today? What what do you got for me today? Who do you want me to love? Who do you want me to care for? Who do you want me to pray for? What do I have that maybe someone else needs more than I do? What do you wanna show me in my life that maybe is a bit off that will help me be formed into the image of your son? One of the highest compliments that you could give a disciple of a rabbi was this, the dust of your rabbi is all over you. Like you follow your, you follow your rabbi so closely, the dust he kicks up when he walks is all over you? Do you have the dust of, your, of Jesus all over you? Here's what's true. You have someone's dust all over you. You have some rabbi's dust all over you. You're following someone. You're following something whose dust is on you what rabbi are you following? Who's teaching you? Who's molding you? Who's shaping you? Who's discipling you? What are you giving your heart to? What are you giving your mind to? Who's your rabbi? Jew, we, you know, we recommend Jesus, uh Jubilee Church. That's where we're that's who we want to run after. It. It's getting a little narrow. You see, that's why Jesus would say things like this unless you're willing to pick up your cross and crosses were used for killing things, make no mistake. Unless you're willing to pick up your cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. It doesn't say you're going to be not a very good one. You know, he's a nominal Christian or he's a radical Christian. There's a broad category of being Christian. You're either following him or you're, all he's saying, he's not saying anything like very mystical. He's just saying, if you don't follow me, you're not following me. Let me say it one more time (laughs) because I just want to make sure we understand this all he's saying is if you're not following me you're not following me so let me ask you again are you following him see a Christian does this Christian says Christian says hey Jesus I've got this decision to make um what, what do you what do you want me to do And you're thinking like, well, what's so scary about that? I mean, like, you know, Jesus knows some stuff and like, it's good to get people's advice on what you should do and consult things. I mean, that's a good idea. Well, here's what a disciple does. A disciple says, Jesus, what do you, how do you want me to to make this decision? And I just want you to know, before you give me your answer, my answer is yes. Okay, now what should I do? Did you notice that word immediately? Twice, immediately they left their boat, they left their career. Immediately they left their father the most important relationship in their life. Parents, do you, is your expectation that your kids, when you ask them to do something, that they do it immediately, or they do it when they finally understand why, agree with, and with a smile on their face, go after it and do it? I'm guessing the nervous laughter is pointing to the fact that you expect immediately, and you know where I'm going with this. It's that O word, it's that follow word, it's it's where it gets a little narrow. Immediately. Hey, geez, I've got, I think I left something on the stove. I'll be right back. immediately. Well, Brian, you know, I mean, my kids, like, my kids, you know, they're just, you know, they don't really know much, and they kind of have this really short perspective, and they don't see things very broadly, and like, I know, and they don't know, and so the Bible says this. The Bible says that, that his ways, okay, my button needs to unbutton. <laughs> it's like yelling out, help! Um, uh, I'm free. The The Bible says that his ways are higher than your ways. His thoughts are higher than your thoughts. As the heavens are high above the earth, so are his thoughts above your thoughts. You've been on a plane lately? Been cruising at 35,000 feet, it's a clear day, you look down and you see the people walking around. No, you don't see the people walking around. You don't see anything. That's how high above his thoughts are to yours. You can't even really see them. They're that insignificant compared to his. not like thoughts feeling and oh you know what I, you know my here's what God says, but this is kind of what I feel. And I, and I, and I know that this is what kind of like the, the general consensus is over here and the general consensus over here. And I'm kind of wrestling with this. And well, in the generally Christian world, that's okay. Disciples do it a little bit differently. In fact, sometimes, you know, our feelings and thoughts can be, I had a conversation, this very sad conversation with someone this year and they were saying, you know, I just think that, whatever, we're talking about a difficult theological topic. And it's just like, what I just think, I just feel like we should err, like whatever's more inclusive is what we should do. I just, that's what I feel we should do. So what I feel is up here and what God says is somewhere else. It's not disciples, it's not how disciples think. Why do you, why do you work where you work? Why, well, because I... I got a 15% raise and a promotion. That's great. I'm glad you got a promotion. I'm glad all that happened. You should go for make the most money, do the best you can. Disciples, the most weighty thing in their life is what Jesus tells them to do. Why do you live where you live? Why do you live in the neighborhood you live? Why do you live in the city you live in? Why do you do do anything that you do? Well, it's because I like this neighborhood and I like this kind of house and I like this kind of lifestyle and I'm thinking about this one day. Maybe I'll live in the mountains. Maybe I'll live by a river. I don't know. Disciples are like, What are we doing today, Jesus? Where are you taking me? Where do I live? Where do I go? It's a little more narrow. You can be generally Christian. In fact, this is why you absolutely need community. You can be generally Christian all on your own. You can listen to your Christian podcast, wear your Christian t shirts, go to your Christian whatever. But if you follow Jesus, you know what they said about Jesus in Mark 3? You know what his family said? You know what his family thought about Jesus in Mark 3? His family thought he's crazy. They thought God in the flesh. No, just let's slow down here for a second. They thought God in the flesh was crazy. If you follow Jesus, people will think you're crazy. You will think you're crazy. You need people around you to tell you, "Hey, you're not crazy." Let's go, let's go. So Hebrews 10, one of my favorite verses on community, uh, one, one group of Christians got thrown in prison for their faith, another, another half of the, the other half didn't. If you went to prison in that time period, if you, you depended upon your friends for medical attention, food and water, and so the ones who weren't in prison had a decision to make, on one hand, if they didn't go to their friends, they would not get food, water, medical attention. And yet, if they did go to their friends, they give them food, water, and medical attention. It means that they have to reveal that they're Christians. And so if you read that text, it said you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted, you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property because you knew you had a better possession and an abiding one. Let me be be so clear. See, one of the things it says in in 2 Corinthians four, it says, and even if our gospel is veiled, the truth is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. So he's talking about unbelievers, but just follow the logic here. To keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Let me just be so clear. We do not follow him and give up stuff to prove our worth. We follow him and give up stuff in recognition of his worth. And the only reason why we don't see it is because the our eyes have been veiled to see the glory that is Christ. Because we look over here at our bank account, we look over here at our career, and we're like, oh, I really like this. Like Gollum or something sinister. (laughs) I've got the, the king of the universe wants a relationship with me. But oh man, this money is so valuable. See, the kingdom of God is like a man who finds a treasure in a field. He finds it and he sells everything. He joyfully sells everything because he wants the treasure in the field. You don't go be a disciple to prove to Jesus that you're worth it. He's already already told you how valuable he was. he, He paid with his blood. The blood of Jesus is on your life. You have nothing to prove. You can't exceed that. We do not f- follow him and give up stuff to prove our worth. We follow him and give up stuff in recognition of his worth. And that's why Paul prayed uh, to the believers. Um, I think it's Ephesians. He says, I pray that the, that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened. Enlightened to see the glory and the wonder of God. This isn't about white-knuckling it and being better Christians, why people are looking. This is about, oh my gosh, I think, I think my career is better than Jesus. My, my, my career is discipling me. My, the way the world thinks, the wisdom of the world seems more valuable to me than the wisdom of God. The wisdom of the world is, is discipling me. This relationship that I have is more valuable to me than Jesus. This relationship is discipling me. Ephesians 2 um, Ephesians two says that, um, oh, there's, there's what it says. Following the course of this world, that you were once following the course of this world, following the prince of the air, what's the next verse? the spirit that has now worked in the sons of disobedience. Notice the connection between following the course of the world, following your flesh, following your desires, uh, whom once all lived, lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, is connected to disobedience. So so in other words, um, following the wisdom of this world, this is kind of what everybody's doing and this is what I think is best and this is what I feel and this is what I think, that is the way you used to be, that is the way that you used to be when you were like everyone else who was disobedient. So like Genesis 3, Genesis 3. So Genesis, you know, same lie, different versions. Genesis 3, hey, you know, God says God says that, you know, he's gonna, something bad's gonna happen to you if you don't do what he says. And I really don't think that's happening. In fact, I actually think that you what you have in mind to do and what you see is, 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 you see, this is pleasing to the eye. You see, this is a good thing. I think you should go do you, and I think you'll be better off for it. And you know how it goes. So, but here's what happens verse four. But God, but God being rich in mercy, made us alive together in Christ. This is not us. This is his grace. This is not about what we do and don't do so that no one can boast. No one can say, look here, I'm a really good Christian. Here, you're not so good. This is all of his grace, but God is the one who's rich in mercy. So he looks at your disobedience. He looks at my disobedience. He looks at my cravings and desires for the world and the flesh. And his response to that is mercy and grace for God so loved the world that he sent his only son, to die in our place, to make us uh, alive in him. He, he came into us with humility. He was born in a barn. He was crucified as a common criminal. By grace, you were saved. That is his approach to you. He approached you with this humility and kindness. And in Romans, two, I know I'm quoting a lot, but just stay with me. In Romans 2, Paul says this. He says, his kindness leads us to what? Repentance. Repentance. Now, most people quote that to say, be nice to people then. But what that really means is God's grace and his mercy is meant to lead you to live a different way of life. You see, because the way that you used to live when you were dead in your sins, you had no spiritual inkling at all, is you just did what everyone else did or you did what you wanted to do. But when God made you alive, the way to respond to that is to repent and be different. Why? So I can prove that I'm worthy. No, 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 no. We already talked about that. So that in recognition of what you just discovered, you just stumbled over a gold mine. And so you are transformed by him. Disciples of Jesus are transformed by Jesus. He's made you like, now we have problems because we don't usually line up authority and intimacy together. Everyone we know that's in authority isn't, we don't like them. And intimacy, we don't, view, so if, if you, but with God, no one has more authority than God but no one has pursued you or loves you more or wants to be closer. We have someone who's closer than a brother. He doesn't just want to be by you. He wants to live inside of you and he wants to change you and he wants to make you something different. Ultimate authority, ultimate intimacy. He's called you to be, to be with him, to make him like you. He wants to mold you and shape you into the image of the son. He wants to make you like himself. And then he wants to change your ambition. He wants disciples of Jesus are on mission with Jesus. Disciples of Jesus are on mission with Jesus. If you were to have a a friend, say you're gonna have a murder mystery dinner at your house um, and you invite your friends over. One friend comes over, you're that one friend and you think to yourself, you know what? I don't know that I really like murder mystery dinners. So I'm going to go watch TV. So you're, you're in the house of your friend, but you're not doing what your friend is doing. There are many Christians who are in the house of Jesus not doing what Jesus is doing. Let me tell you what Jesus is up to. He, is, he came to seek and save the lost. He came here to find the lost peoples of the world until every tribe and every tongue confess that he is Lord. That's what he's doing. And he wants to bring you along in that. He wants to. He wants you to follow him, to be with him. He wants to change you and transform you. And he wants to give you a new agenda. It may not mean that you leave your job. For some it might, it did for Mike Lawson. We have gap year uh, interns and they put off college to go, fo- that's what it meant for them. But it means he becomes a priority of your life and, and being with him and doing what he's up to is what you want to do most. Why don't you stand? I want us to say this prayer to together as a prayer of daily surrender. In fact, you might want to go ahead and snap a picture of this. And you could I would encourage you to say it every day, um, just to be truthful. Uh, I got this prayer from another pastor, but I did pray it the other day, and it worked. And so, but let's say this together. You guys are up for this? Heavenly Father. I surrender myself to you, my hands, my feet, my eyes.